Well, good morning. As Pastor Keith said, uh, Pastor Josh, it's going to get confusing here, is in uh, Southern California on family vacation, and Kathy woke up sick this morning, so we were down to third string, you know? We had to pull Keith out of retirement. Pretty good, that's right. I was, that's exactly what I was going to say. How blessed are we to have three people deep on a Sunday morning that can lead us in such excellent worship? Isn't that great? Praise God for that. And I, I have to say, I don't know where she is. I'm going to totally embarrass you. Grace, you're playing on the piano this morning. It was just exquisite. Thank you. Thank you. Um, This is uh, definitely a time of year, uh, it's, you know, February 7th, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, some places in the world, they're starting to get out their garden wares, and um, that is not here, and I, I don't know how you're doing this particular season, on one hand, it's been warm, and uh, it's really been a beautiful winter, and if they were all like this, there'd be a lot more people living in Fairbanks, Alaska, but it's still February 7th, right, and we still have had a long winter uh, ahead of us, and it, there's still plenty of hard things in life and all of this, and I think I'm especially sensitive to this right now. Yesterday, I uh, officiated a funeral for a young man who was tragically killed this last week, and just have seen a lot of grief and a lot of hurt and a lot of sadness, and sometimes I see more than my fair share of that, I think, and I just want to, I guess, sort of lay that out in front of all of us and just remind us to be attentive to one another, uh, to be considerate and compassionate. Uh, I was thinking this morning of uh, uh, Ephesians, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Uh, this is a hard, hard season, hard time. We're not all, all of us, we're not yet at our best, and, uh, and sometimes that comes at us in different ways, whether it's our own doing or, or things in the lives of others. And so I just want to encourage you, just pastorally, be sensitive to one another. Be caring, be kind, be gracious to one another. If you see someone who looks like they're struggling, lean in a little bit. See if you can be a blessing and an encouragement to them. But let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into our passage this morning. Father, I want to thank you for uh, just a beautiful morning as the sun is just rising and coming up. And, and uh, we're beginning to um, anticipate the warmth that comes in spring. I know it's a ways off and yet we're beginning to think that way. Uh, and there's hope in that. God, I pray that even just being here together as the family of God would warm our hearts, would bring comfort and solace and encouragement. God, that as we are able to lift our voices, not just to you, but to lift them together to you, that there might be a mutual encouragement in all of that. Lord, our desire this morning is that you would be praised above all, but that we as your people would do that in responsible ways, that we would be good worshipers, that we would be followers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in word and in deed. Uh, So teach us again from your word, Lord, as we've sung uh, so beautifully this morning about the cross and the glory of it and the scandal of it and what is so amazing about it. May we be hit afresh with the reality that sin can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. Because he came for us, and he died for us, and he rose for us. So we pray with gratitude in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, 
We're just uh, tracking along in our series, Messy Christianity, and we've kind of got this little mini-series mixed in there, uh, verse, or chapters 11 through 14 that I'm calling, Please Worship Responsibly. Please Worship Responsibly. That seems to me to be the Apostle Paul's mini-theme in these chapters. Um, now, I have a minor confession to make here at the outset. Uh, this is just going to really scandalize you. Uh, truthfully... I am not a very good sharer, okay? I, I, I'm not kidding about that. I'm not exaggerating that. I really am not. You can ask any of my family members. They'll tell you that that's true, uh, especially when it comes to food, mostly when it comes to food. Um, you know, like when it comes down to the last row of Oreos, those are mine, you know, the last row, not just the last couple. I mean, the last row, I see that as mine, um, it, on, on weekends especially, one of my favorite things is to take time and make a, a really lovely turkey club sandwich, you know. And I've discovered some really special things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your attention here by causing you to salivate. One of my newest finds is not only, a, you know, some really good turkey, lightly toasted bread, but I'm liking now to take and cut an apple with really thin, like, cross sections of apple and lay that on top. Try that. It's delicious. And I find that after I've made one of these, my family all starts eyeing it, and they want a bite. And um, I say, make your own. (laughs) I've made mine. Here's all the stuff. Uh, Make your own. I I have no desire to share. Uh, And I'm especially kind of stingy when it comes to uh, my beverage. Oh, that's never okay to take a drink of whatever I'm drinking. Even if I've agreed, I'm still not okay with it. and, and the problem in my mind is that I have carefully proportioned, right, how much sandwich I have with how much beverage I have. And I'm carefully consuming these two things in, in proper moderation. Am I alone? Is there anybody else that does this? I think I'm just putting words to some of your experiences. This is what I do. Very carefully. And if somebody comes up and now they have, they've t- taken a drink out of my cup, They've messed with the, the portions, right? The whole ratio is now off. The balance is gone. And I know some of you, because you're cantankerous people too, you're sitting here thinking, well, the solution would be then to take a bite of the sandwich, right? And then take a drink of the drink and the proportions are all okay, right? Um, the problem is still that it's all mine. And this is really the underlying issue for me. Uh, Pastor Keith, when he uh, was here in the office day in and day out, um, he used to always help himself to a bite or a drink of whatever it was I was having. <laughs> he wouldn't even ask permission. He just, you know, I don't know. I, just, I guess that comes after working 13 years together. He just felt like whatever was on my plate or in my cup was his. And actually, I, th- I think he saw himself as a righteous agent of my own sanctification. <laughs> he was going to make me a better sharer, you know. Which, it hasn't worked, Keith, just so you know. Um, In this next section here, Paul confronts people like me, uh, people who maybe tend to be a little bit more on the self-centered side of things. Uh, And specifically, the arena that he's concerned about is in corporate worship, when we come together to worship together in the general assembly. And that's where Paul is instructing us. And he cautions us against, here's the phrase that I want to put in your mind, he cautions us against Self-centered worship. Self-centered worship. Uh, last week we uh, we looked particularly at the part uh, part of worshiping responsibly 
uh, that was being considerate of others. Specifically, we saw that as worshipers came together in Corinth, that Paul was confronting them. He wanted to make sure that they still adorned themselves in ways that were honoring to proper leadership, proper headship, and even a distinction of gender. That they would not throw off those things in the name of the newfound freedom that they had to worship the Lord. But that they would still retain some of those timeless distinctions that God intended. In other words, he didn't want them to come in a duplicitous fashion. On one hand, coming with this posture of piety and praise and prayer. But on the other hand, dressed in such a way that they were renouncing any rightful authority or any rightful distinction in gender or these kinds of things. And so that's what he was confronting last week. He didn't want that duplicity in worship. He specifically wanted people to be respectful as they, even as they adorned themselves. Uh, and in this section here, verses 17 through 34, we're going to see that this pattern of considerate worship continues. Uh, and in this case, even within some of the logistics uh, of worshiping together. And so Paul's second area of correction here is in the area of how believers are celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Now, I want to pause here for just a second. Uh, Logistics. This doesn't really come across as a bit of a spiritual word, does it? This doesn't seem like, oh, wow, this is really something that the Bible addresses. But, But it does. And I want to honor a couple people. First of all, I really want to honor Andrew Chapman back here at the sound booth. He is always there, by the way. And this guy, yeah. Give him... Andrew is one who is always concerned about logistics, not because he is unconcerned about what happens here spiritually on a Sunday morning, but because he's very concerned about that, and he doesn't want there to be distractions. So things like mic levels and where the seats are and and, uh, the the way that the, the, um, the table here is set for us, logistics of how communion would even be... Uh, uh, given out, and and just all kinds of things, Uh, the lighting, the air. He concerns himself with that week in and week out so that we would be not distracted in our worship of the Lord. And this is the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is getting at here. But let's look at the verse. Let's look at the text, verse 17. It says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Read that with some serious, you know, attitude. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Well, once again, we find ourselves beginning this passage and we're, and we're getting, or at least the Corinthians are getting a good old-fashioned finger-wagging from the Apostle Paul, right? Don't do this. Don't do this, he's saying. We get this corrective. I think the first principle that we can draw from this is this, that there really is no place for divisions in worship. Or we might even extend that to say there's no place for divisions uh, really within the people of God. No place for division. Uh, I would tell you this, that God seems to be especially intolerant of division and divisive people within the church. 
Uh, understand there seems to be a lot of patience from the Lord in, in everyday areas of conflict, these kinds of things that come up, although he gives us lots of instructions on in how to work through that. But when you think about it, you know, in Romans 12, we're told that as far as it is possible, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. So there's an instruction, but there's also an awareness that, hey, it's not always in your lane to take care of. Uh, in Acts chapter 15, we, we have the story of Barnabas and uh, Paul. And they have, we're told, such a sharp disagreement that they part company. Uh, we also see the same kind of thing with Abraham and Lot, right? When the land wasn't enough to support both of them, they said, well, okay, we need, to, we need to part here. So there's time and place for maybe for conflict and for separating out. But it seems to me that where God gets really irritated and seems to have no patience for is divisive kinds of people, disrespectful, unconsiderate people. In fact, in one of the more stinging passages in the New Testament, Titus 3, verses 10 and 11, it says this, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped. In other words, turned back on themselves. Sinful, and they are self-condemned. In other words, one of the real natural outworkings of one who has been indwelled by the Spirit of God is that they are loving and considerate of others. That that is their heart and that is their nature and that that, uh, that is with them even as they gather together for worship. One who is set on stirring up divisions and being unconsiderate of others is not evidencing God's presence or work within them. And this is what we were seeing in Corinth uh, divisions we see really were driven by a sense of self-importance, especially in this uh, presenting context here. You can see the words in verse 19. And again, I, as I instruct, you should read these with a lot of attitude. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show, to show which of you really have God's approval. Right? These were shows. These were ways of drawing attention to one sh- oneself to show that they were the spiritually elite. And the Corinthians seem to have invented lots of ways in which they could demonstrate this. What we are finding is a spirit of spiritual one-upmanship. You're stepping on one another in the name of piety and religion. How absurd, right? Uh, And yet it happens. I'm going to steal a story here from Chuck Swindoll. I love this guy. Some of his stories and his teachings still ring in my ears as though I just heard them yesterday. Mildred, the church gossip and self-appointed monitor of the church morals, kept sticking her nose in other people's business. Several other members did not approve of Mildred's extracurricular activities, but they feared her enough to maintain their distance and their silence. She made a mistake, however, when she accused George, a brand new member, of being an alcoholic after seeing his old pickup truck parked outside the town's only bar one afternoon. She emphatically told George and several others that everyone seeing it there would know what he was doing. George, a man of few words, stared at her for a moment and just turned and walked away. He didn't explain anything. 
He didn't defend himself or even deny. He just quietly walked away. But later that evening, George quietly parked his pickup truck out front of Mildred's house, walked home, and left it there all night. (laughs) I I like George. If George is looking for a church to belong to, we'll take him. Um, You know, we can kind of laugh and chuckle at these stories. And part of the reason we laugh at them is because they ring true. Right, we know a Mildred. That, you know, the church that I grew up in. I got to tell you, uh, Karen Whitlock. She's dead now, long since dead. And I, I got to tell you, I don't even think she died peacefully. I think she took people with her. That's that was just the way she rolled. I'll tell you a true story. On a Sunday morning, I didn't plan for this, so I'll probably get in trouble. But on a Sunday morning. We came to church one day, and my dad was supposed to, I mean, I think I was 12 or 13 at the time. My dad was supposed to make an announcement in church. And so he made sure to sit on the end of the aisle, and since there wasn't enough seats in the row that we were in, he actually sat one row ahead of our family. Well, we got home, and after being home, I don't think more than an hour, we got a phone call from Karen uh, just letting us know that she had already shared it with the prayer ministry that our my parents were having marital difficulty and she would continue praying for their difficulty simply because my dad was sitting one row in front of our family because he was planning on making an announcement. And uh, this was the way she rolled. I think she walked out of more business meetings than she finished. Uh, It was just, just tough. But there are these kinds of people. And and really, in the guise of piety and whatever else, they really would be sort of warped and turned inward and and wearing a badge of, right, of this spiritual one-upmanship. And this is what Paul is getting at here. No need for snarky, self-centering posturing in the church. He even says, he goes as far as to say that their poor practice was making their celebration meaningless. Now, the presenting problem here is, is really simple. Uh, some were feasting, right, while others were left hungry. Uh, and you can see, it doesn't take a genius to see, there's an obvious incongruity here. What they're celebrating is the Lord's Supper, the Lord's sacrifice, where Christ saw the needs of others and gave of himself to meet those needs. And in their gathering together, in the name of commemorating that, they were doing just the opposite. Stepping on one another, serving themselves, and neglecting and not even seeing the needs of another. And so the message of the symbol was actually contradicted in the clumsy and the insensitive practice. And so Paul even goes as far as to tell them this, that it is not even the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating. It may be your attempt. It may be the pretense. But it's nothing more than that. What you're practicing, hometown buffet, right? A buffet line. That's what it, that's what it looks like. There's a song that came to mind this week as I was preparing and reading over this. I don't know if many of you know this particular artist. His name is John Foreman. He's the lead singer for a group called uh, Switchfoot, but he's done a lot of solo albums. 
And he has one that I really like. Um, it's not actually the most beautiful song to listen to, but it's one of the more thought-provoking songs that I've listened to. Uh, and the title of it is Instead of a Show. And I want to read you the lyrics for it. See if you can, here, here's the puzzle for you. See if you can recall the passage of scripture that he's drawing from. But he says this, I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your praise. The hypocrisy of your festivals. I hate all your show. Away with your noisy worship. Away with your noisy hymns. I stop up my ears when you're singing them. I hate all your show. Instead, let there be a flood of justice. An endless procession of righteous living. Living. Instead, let there be a flood of justice instead of a show. You close your eyes, or your eyes are closed when you're praying. You sing right along with the band. You shine up your shoes for service, but there's blood on your hands. You've turned your back on the homeless and the ones who don't fit in your plan. Quit playing religious games. There's blood on your hands. I hate all your shows. What a provocative uh, song. And uh, I, I wonder, did anybody... Amos, that's exactly right. Amos chapter 5, I think it is, 4 or 5, is where he finds his, um, his inspiration there. And I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul has in mind. He doesn't want to just see shows of worship. He wants us to be the real deal. And that shows up not only in the vertical dimension, but it shows up in the horizontal dimension as well. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a second here. Um, now, since we celebrate the, the way that we celebrate the Lord's Supper is done, again, largely in a symbolic way, and the way that we do it is a very tiny piece of bread and a really tiny personal cup that gets efficiently passed through uh, the audience here, we're not really likely to struggle with this same issue in specific detail. But if the presenting issue really is a consideration in our worship, and a consideration not only of God, but a consideration of one another, then I think there's a lot of things. There's a lot of potentials that we should consider in our worship. And so I'm just going to suggest some. I, I think particularly maybe by the way, the way of distractions is one thing to consider. In the way that we're worshiping, are we creating a distraction? Or is there any way in which we might be getting in the way of wholehearted worship for others? Uh, so here's some examples. How about your cell phone? You can start there. Some of you are going, oh, that's right. I didn't turn it off. I didn't silence it. This is one of those distractions. Go ahead, and, go ahead and do it right now. If you're just remembering, go ahead and pull it out. Turn it off. This is one of those things where we can really create a distraction for others. Someone may be attentively listening to the word. Their heart may be really engaged in a song. Or they're listening closely to the scriptures being read. And then all of a sudden, a cell phone goes off. Uh, it's just... You know, it seems out of place. I know it happens. It's going to happen to you. In fact, I have this great story. I remember when uh, Paul Holmes and I first, uh, uh, my predecessor, for those of you who weren't here, uh, he asked me to uh, follow him in, in uh, pastoral leadership here in the church. And so there was kind of a new, a new time where I was up preaching and he was sitting in the seat, something that he hadn't done a whole lot. And one day he's sitting there and all of a sudden a phone is going off and he's getting irritated because it's getting louder and louder. And as he tells the story, he's sitting there thinking, who in the world is letting their phone go this long? And he looks down and realizes that it's his. 
and he was just out of practice, you know, sort of sitting in the seats and maybe even having his phone on him. And then he wasn't even, as if you know Paul, God love him, he's not good with technology. And he'd look at his, and he had no idea how to shut it off, and so he's kind of fumbling it, and it's, it's on an ascending ring in terms of loudness. So it's getting louder and louder, and he's trying to walk out with this thing. It's, it's just a great memory for me. <laughs> Maybe not so much for Paul, but uh, it was funny to hear him talk about, who is doing, ah, oh, it's me. How about, uh, how about your children? Are they well-behaved? service. Uh, you know, are they quiet? Now, kids make noises. We know this. And, and that's something that we need to be prepared for. But if your kids are being a distraction, boy, we've gone through great lengths to have TVs out in the foyer with uh, audio and a mother's nursing room and uh, children's, you know, a little infant's nursery and an older kid's nursery. And we're doing everything that we can to create a space where your kids can be comfortable. And even you yourselves can uh, not miss something. Be considerate of that. Uh, give attention, how about to your own countenance? Have you prepared yourself for wholehearted worship? Does your face and your countenance reflect what you're engaging in, that you're worshiping a God who has saved your soul from sin and from hell? Sometimes your faces look like you're, you know, you want to pass a kidney stone, you know. <laughs> Does your account, do you, are you aware of where you are and what you're doing by the grace of God? How about um, maybe this, this isn't even just inside this, this particular room, but consider where you've parked maybe. Now I say that and I think I'm the first car right there. So here I am already feeling like a hypocrite. But some of you are, you know, you're well-bodied, able people and you walk in and it's pretty simple for you to get from the parking lot to the inside the auditorium here. And you know what? Some moms come in with, you know, two or three kids on their arms and they don't always have dad with them. And they're parked way out at the end. You know, can you leave room for young moms? Can you leave room for uh, those that are older or those who are not, uh, maybe would not handle the distance so well? Uh, Now, I'm really going to pick on you. I'm going to go there. How about where you're seated? And we bring this up from time to time. I think you all know this by now. Uh, the church is just the absolute inverse to the airline industry, okay? In the church, the first class seating is in the back. <laughs> and it's on the aisles. In contrast to every airline out there. And, and the coach seating, right, is the front and the middle. And I just want you to know, I just want to try to make it as plain as possible. If you're a regular attender here at the church, if you're comfortable here, you know your way around here, you've been coming here for a while now, you're coach. All right, let me just try to say it a different way. You're to sit in the coach seating. We want to leave our first class seating for our guests. I want you to remember what it felt like to walk through the doors of a religious place You have no idea what's going to happen inside. You don't know if there's going to be live animals and chickens and dancing in the aisle. You you don't know. You do not know what you're walking into. You don't know where things are. You come into the service. It took you a little longer. Now you're late and you just see a wall of people. Where do you go? It's hard enough just to have the courage to show up. 
And now you're supposed to navigate a labyrinth of difficult seating, but all you see are people. People who have been coming here a long time and they're sitting in the first class seating. So let me just lovingly but directly remind you, you all who have been here a while, your coach. Okay? Here. Leave the first class seating for our guests. Be considerate uh, to them. There's lots of different things that I could bring up here. Again, I don't think it's so much the way that we practice the Lord's Supper that it's going to be the direct issue for us. But there's lots of ways that we might think about the principle of considerate worship, not being self-centered, but having eyes and hearts to see the needs of those around us. Are we worshiping responsibly? In 1 John, it tells us that we are not permitted to say, I love God, and yet I hate my brother. He tells us that when we do that, we're we're really a liar. In other words, true wholehearted worship has has a vertical dimension and it has a horizontal awareness. And we need to be attentive to both. We can never simply get away with the singularity of devotion where our eyes are only on the Lord and neglect the needs of people around us. Scriptures don't teach that. All right. Secondly, one of the ways that we are to worship God is by loving those around us. Look at this uh, in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, You should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. All right, let's look at a couple things quickly here. First of all, we see that in each of these instances, we are able to look at Christ Jesus as our example in everything that Paul is teaching in this section here. In other words, and I think I have, if I'm honest with you, I think I have... Out of familiarity, stopped hearing the beginning line in this passage here where it says, in the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was betrayed. I think I've just become so comfortable hearing that that I have failed to let it sink in. But while Jesus was being betrayed, he was thinking of others. In other words, if there was a moment really of of maybe self-indulgence, if we could call it that way, for Jesus and all of his ministry, this was it. 
His betrayal was upon him. His crucifixion was coming. His death that he knew of, the purpose for his coming, was right around the corner. This really was his last supper. This was it. You know, I I sort of joked about myself as being a little bit self-centered when it comes to my food and my sandwich and my beverage and all of these things and trying to keep them in and proper ratio and, and, and proportion, if Jesus were thinking the same way, then he would say, well, I'm about ready to spend of myself tomorrow, so I'm just going to indulge right now. Just going to think of me. But the passage tells us just the opposite. In fact, the Gospels make it really explicit. They say that he gives the piece of bread to Judas to indicate that this is the traitor, right? And then he gives him the charge. What you're about to do right? Get on with it right now. Get to it. Judas is right in the throes of betraying his Savior for himself, for selfish profit. And Jesus simultaneously is right in the throes of giving of himself to others. There is a moment of paradox here between what these two are doing. And I think some of the application that we can see here, one of the things that we need to learn is that Jesus is an example for us in each and every one of these teachings that Paul lays out for us. For the woman, as we saw last week, who is covering herself in culturally acceptable symbols to honor leadership and authority and to show the right signs of submission, she can look to Jesus and see that he too submitted himself to the Father who was his head. To the man that we looked at last week, right? The man who was trying to exercise servant-hearted leadership in his family and in the church. He too can look to Jesus and his way of demonstrating servant-hearted leadership as well. And for the worshiper who is trying to come to the Lord in a wholehearted manner of worship. They can look again to the example of Jesus. Whose eyes were not just on the Father, but also on the needs of of others. It was not an either or. The other thing that we're taught here is this that the thoughtless participation, particularly in the Lord's Supper, this is a really stinging thing. I'm not really comfortable with this, but the thoughtless participation in the Lord's Supper, Paul said, was an occasion for discipline on the people, resulting in some things such as disease and in some cases even death. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. That, that's pretty raw. He warns them in verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. Eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but Catholics really focus on that the actual presence of Christ is there in the elements. In fact, transubstantiation teaches effectively that there is a transformation of the elements as one is ingesting them to be the actual uh, body and blood of Christ. Now, the Protestants reject that teaching. We don't see that in the scriptures, and I'm all for that. But I would, if I'm honest, I would say, you know what? We may actually go too far the other way. And we may actually become too comfortable in a light-hearted symbol without pausing to reflect and to discern the presence of Christ with us. 
as we participate in the Lord's Supper. And so I want to just give you some really practical advice on how we do this. How is it that we are to reflect during this time when we take the Lord's Supper together? What should we be doing? How is it that we examine ourselves? And, and I would say in the, in the simplest sort of umbrella statement uh, advice I would give you is this. I think we should rehearse the gospel in our mind. Rehearse the gospel. And that is proper reflection. In other words, I think in a moment as we ask you to bow your heads and to contemplate what is before you, I would ask you to rehearse the gospel. Consider these kinds of thoughts. Our God is a holy God, altogether other, without sin, without any imperfection. We are all of us, every one of us, sinners. And the sin nature persists in us, even as we're trying to become more like our Savior. We acknowledge that we have this sinful nature in us, but that we have a need for Jesus. We also acknowledge that our sins were paid for at the cross. Past, present, and future. Even as sin continues to flow out of our lives, there are sins that Christ has already paid for if we have trusted in him as our Savior. We acknowledge that Christ's death shields us from the wrath of God. And we, as Paul says here, we proclaim that he's coming again. And his coming again is not in judgment of us, but he comes for us to receive us to himself.